If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we can get a Bible into your hands. I'm always um, grateful for folks who have their Bibles open as I'm speaking. It reminds me of the time that Paul was uh, in Berea. And uh, the folks there, the believers, were checking with Scripture uh, what Paul was saying. And that's a great uh, habit for the church to be a part of. Um, Hearts open and Bibles open. As we turn to God's Word, um, we are in great need of assistance. And so let's go before the Lord and ask Him for that. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to find our way home. You have left us your word and your spirit. You've given us a map and a compass. So, Father, we are in need today of revelation from the outside. Would your word speak into our lives? And we are in need of transformation on the inside. Would your Holy Spirit be at work enabling us more and more to um, turn from sin and turn in faith to Christ. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we said a few weeks ago when we began this series, today there is a widespread ignorance and confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. In his uh, introductory remarks uh, to Mark's gospel, Eugene Peterson, the author of the paraphrase of the scriptures entitled The Message, wrote this. For common as belief in God is, there is also an enormous amount of guesswork and gossip surrounding the subject, which results in runaway superstition, anxiety, and exploitation. So Mark, understandably, is in a hurry to tell us what happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the event that reveals the truth of God to us so that we can live in reality and not in illusion. Reality. You know, I just thought of right now, uh, one of the dominant forms of entertainment out there is the reality show. You ever thought about it? Actually, it's the illusion show. For this is reality. For those whom God has opened the eyes to see him, to hear him, to know him, this is reality. And that's why worship, as we've said before, is almost like a protest against the the world as God's people gather, as we confess our faith together, what we believe. Because again, People believe a lot of things when it comes to Jesus, but are they true? Are they accurate? Is it real? Is it according to the Bible? Remember, we heard about this article, 10 Counterfeit Christ Figures We Should Stop Worshiping. The guru Jesus, the Jesus who you turn to uh, for the expert advice, the red letter Jesus, in other words, only the Jesus that you see uh, his words directly in scripture. Or the brave heart Jesus, the American Jesus, the left-wing Jesus, the Dr. Phil Jesus, the prosperity Jesus, the post-church Jesus, the best friend forever Jesus, the legalist Jesus. 
Those are just 10 of the many Jesus's people are believing in and worshiping. And before we get off the hook, let's stop and ask ourselves right now. Can we square the Jesus we believe in, the Jesus we confess, the Jesus we say we trust? Can we square that view of Jesus with the scriptures? Because if we can't, then I'm sad to say that we are following, worshiping, trusting in a Jesus that cannot save. A Jesus that cannot bring us home to God. To Jesus of our imagination. So in other words, there is absolutely the need to always understand Jesus according to the Bible. And that's what we're doing in our series in Mark Remember, Mark is uh, in two parts. Who is Jesus and what he has done? The, Jesus the Christ and Jesus the Son of God. We see that hinge in the middle when Jesus asks two questions. Who do people say that I am? He follows that up with another question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And at the end of Jesus' life, his identity is revealed once more as the Roman centurion looks up and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And you see that in the introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've been saying that Mark is the interpreter of Peter's encounters with Jesus. He wrote it down. And we see that Mark uses a method of the docudrama where he he takes episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus and zooms in on the work of Jesus and the words of Jesus and then zooms out to get the crowd's response and reaction. And Mark's message is the same message of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's centered upon Jesus. It's about Him and it's proclaimed by Him. Jesus, the man, the Christ, the Son of God, The message he brings and his mission we will see unfold as we travel through Mark. We're learning that Jesus is, in a word, the king who brings with him the kingdom of God. And remember, it's helpful to consider Mark as the shortest catechism. If you're ever lost in Mark... Even though it's a short 16 chapter book, you may get lost. And if you're lost, come back to these three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And how should someone respond to him? We said a week or so ago that Mark is a mystery. Not a mystery in that we, um, it's some unsolvable puzzle. But it's a mystery in that it has to be revealed to us. And we see right off the bat, it's revealed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And it's like those old episodes of the detective show Columbo. Instead of a whodunit where we find out the identity of the bad guy at the end, here in Mark we find out the identity of the good guy at the beginning. It's Jesus. And we watch the episode unfold and more and poor people come to understand who Jesus is as this mystery is revealed. His identity is discovered. But there's also another mystery, and that is what is the kingdom like? Jesus said, 
um, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that kingdom look like? What is the nature of the kingdom? And that's for us, the reader, to discover as we travel through this gospel. Well, after listening to the declaration and demand of the gospel from the first sermon that Mark wanted us to hear, and we saw last week in verses 14 and 15, today we're going to see Jesus, the King, in action, demonstrating his authority, as well as uh, declaring his priority as we travel through verses 16 through 39. Now, you all might say, wait a minute, on week one, we did one verse, and then on week two, we did several verses. And then back to week three, we did two verses. Well, now week four, why so many? Well, if, you, if those of you that are familiar with the scriptures, you could see that there's probably three or four or ten sermons out of this passage. But I believe there's also one sermon out of this passage as well. As, and as you become more and more familiar with God's word, it's important to keep the big picture and the small picture in mind all the time. And today, we're going to look at verses 16 through 39. And in the first verses from 16 to 34, we see Jesus demonstrating his authority. His authority to call, to call men in verses 16 through 20. You know, earlier Jesus said, repent and believe the good news Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, here, Mark illustrates what it means to repent and believe. It's important to know that also that Mark is not the only witness to the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four gospel accounts. And we see from John that Andrew and, and James and John, they, they knew Jesus before. They, they, they were familiar with John the Baptist. They were familiar with Jesus. So as Jesus sees them and calls them, it's not as if they had never heard of this man and it was a bolt of lightning from, from nowhere. Just keep in mind that we have several witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, but this is what Mark wants us to know. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Normally at that time, rabbis, as they taught and traveled, waited for men to come to them and waited for men to start following them. Not Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus goes after people. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus takes common everyday things. And for these men, what are they? They're fishermen. And he takes their common, ordinary, honorable vocations and injects new life and meaning into them. For the fishing metaphor in the Old Testament had to do with judgment. Judgment and salvation. And if you think of a fish being pulled from the darkness of the water, as it were, to the light of day. It's a new environment for the fish. In, in, um, in, in fishing, if a fish leaves the water, he dies. But as we will see, as Jesus and his followers fish for men, actually people live as they get pulled from darkness into light. Notice... Jesus says, follow me. And it's a negative 
and a positive. They have to leave something behind in order to follow. They left everything. For Simon and Andrew, they're leaving work. For James and John, they're leaving family. This call to discipleship is a pattern for every believer, as we will see in chapter 8 specifically. But here the focus is on these four men that will be the first four of the twelve that we will see Jesus train and uh, make the men upon whom the church is founded. This call that Jesus issues, follow me, it's a call to absolute obedience and surrender. And notice, if it's anyone other than Jesus, any other man that says, follow me, drop what you're doing. If it's anyone other than Jesus, it is It is absurd. It is appalling. It is outrageous. But that's what cult leaders do, isn't it? They say, follow me. And then eventually you die in some kind of burning building or you die because you drink the poisoned cup. No, Jesus says, follow me. So what it means to follow Jesus lies in the forefront of Mark's mind. The point Mark is making and the point we should be hearing is this. Jesus has authority over men. And the emphasis here is that the call is effective. Years ago, I was introduced to the expression, the effectual call. And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea. Effectual call? I mean, does that mean affectionate call? No, effectual. In other words, when the call goes out, it's heard and responded to. The call goes out and it's irresistible. It accomplishes what it sets out. And here we see in Jesus' public ministry, there on the Lake of Galilee, He calls and men follow. The King has come to gather people into His kingdom. Not only to do that, but also to teach. Look at verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus here is shown teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he's teaching as one who had authority. Unlike the other teachers, unlike the other teachers who would say, prophet so-and-so said this, and prophet so-and-so said that, and this rabbi said this and that, and it was just a running commentary. Jesus says, as we read elsewhere in the scriptures, but I say to you. In other words, this authority is literally out of the original stuff, and Jesus is original. Even the prophets have to say, thus saith the Lord, and Jesus just speaks. And what is the people's response to authority? What is the response to his teaching? It is absolutely astonishment, amazement. Because they are with someone who's not simply repeating traditions, but he's teaching of his own authority. And notice here, Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is Lord of the mind. You know, we, some of us are familiar with R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, renewing the mind, renewing your mind. What controls the heart and the hand? The mind, as it were. The mind. Jesus knows, 
And Mark knows that what you believe affects what you do. And so Jesus has authority over what you think and believe. The king has not only come to gather people, but to instruct people about his kingdom. But not only that, but also to heal, we see beginning in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus has the authority to heal. And here we see the manifestations of the kingdom's arrival. And it's not simply a claim, but here we see real power. And we see first the authority over demons. The casting out of an unclean spirit. Now, For those of you familiar with the scriptures, you know that the scriptures present us with the world as it is, both what we can see with our eyes and what we cannot see with our eyes, and both the natural and the supernatural. And at times and in places, there are that we see the demonic activity, but concentrated in particular is around the life and ministry of Jesus, because Jesus, as we know, has come to pick a fight. Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil. And as we will see here in the synagogue, what happens when Jesus is present? A man with an unclean spirit, all of a sudden there's combat, there's confrontation, there is good versus evil, there's the white hats and the black hats in the synagogue. He recognized who Jesus was. He was comfortable in the synagogue until Jesus came. Have you thought about that? Now, Mark doesn't go into any detail, but was this man with an unclean spirit there in the synagogue week after week after week and hearing what the rabbis and others were teaching, he was absolutely comfortable. But Jesus is here and Jesus is speaking. And you know, have you ever thought about that? That if people get up and leave a service, it may not be because the preaching is bad. It may be because the preaching is really, really good and pointed and convicting and driving people to confront their sin, but also to confront the grace of Jesus Christ. This man who was comfortable all of a sudden is not comfortable at all. Jesus is a man here of few words. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. In other words, Jesus says, shut up and get out. And the demon obeys. And the battle is on. Jesus demonstrates the authority of his word, establishing his kingdom in the face of evil. Brothers and sisters, all of us probably are familiar with Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And that sounds wonderful and good until you're in that kind of church situation. And here it is, Jesus confronting evil, the father of lies, the opponent and arch enemy of God. And Jesus' power is absolute. And what is the reaction of the crowd? They are amazed at not only what they heard 
but what they have seen, and this reinforces his authority to teach. And we see in verse 27 a question. What is this? What is this? Who is this? I don't know whether you've been following Jesus for as long as you can remember, or maybe two months ago started following Jesus. But from what we've heard so far, is this the Jesus you know? The one who has authority to call, to teach, to heal? Do you in your mind ask when reading about Jesus and seeing Jesus revealed from the pages of Scripture go, who on earth is this? If you are, that is, that is wonderful. Because God loves to respond to those kind of questions. Who is this? Who is this? Jesus not only has authority, as it were, over the supernatural, He has authority over the natural, this sickness. And this is a short miracle, a short healing story of Peter's mother-in-law that we see in verses 29 through 31. And like all miracles, it's a clue to the identity of Jesus, the one who has come to restore the world. And think about it. Peter's mother-in-law. She's ill. She has a fever. She's um, in bed, I guess, ill with the fever. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Uh, we see Jesus restore this woman to what she was meant to be. It's a preview of coming attractions. Anytime you see this miracle take place of healing, it's not only a sign pointing to Jesus, but it's also a sign pointing to what's to come. Because brothers and sisters, if you're not looking forward to the day, the day when there's no more sorrow and sadness and death and dying and disease, that's what's coming. And here is a preview it's the trailer for the movie. The movie that we will see in full one day. Here we get a glimpse of what will happen when the kingdom of God comes in its final form. You just read this, and she began to serve them. I can't tell you how many people have said, oh great, that, that proves that, you know... Um, Okay, you've got to have you know, women serving men and getting up and serving a meal and all this. Are you kidding me? This is about Jesus. But it's also about what happens when people's lives are changed. They get up and they're about serving. It's a life changed. It's a life healed. And in verses 32 and 34, we see that evening at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Here is a summary of his healing ministry. Jesus is both Lord over the physical and the spiritual, and it's all subject to his power. And notice in passing in verse 34, he didn't let the demons speak. Jesus is revealing himself on his own timetable. The time has not yet come. They know who he is and he does not let them speak. The time had not yet come. The king here has come to reverse the effects of the fall. 
The great reversal has come. It's like joy to the world. He makes his, he makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus is reversing the curse. It's the great reversal. It's what happened last night when Michigan was 10 seconds away from a victory over Michigan State. They were in the lead. And then there's a fumble on the punt. And Michigan State recovers and runs it in with no time left. The great reversal. Friends, that's a football game. We're talking about the reversal of the world Far as the curse is found, Jesus comes and makes his blessings known. Jesus demonstrates his authority through calling, teaching, and power. Who is this, the people ask? One greater than John is here. One who both heaven and demons confess is the Son of God. The Holy One of God. Jesus as King demonstrates His authority, but He also demonstrates His priority. He declares His priority, and we see that in our final verses, 35 through 39. In a word, Jesus says His priority is to preach. To preach. That is why He came out, He says, I've come to preach. But before we get there, we see He came to declare his priority to pray. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went up to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This is three instances in Mark. The first instance of Jesus withdrawing to pray. It's a time of crisis and a time of decision. Jesus goes into a deserted, desolate place where he fights the spiritual battle as he does later in the garden in preparation for the cross. Did you notice in verse 35, four verbs. Jesus rising very early, departed, went out and prayed. It highlights Jesus' resolve to have fellowship with his father. I don't know about you, but if, if there's an excuse not to pray, I generally buy it. How about you all? I'm too tired. I can't pray. I've got other things to do. I can't pray. Um, Jesus, four verbs, rises early, departs, went out, prays. He wants to fellowship with his father. How about you? Would you cut through four verbs to fellowship with your father? I mean, I'm convinced that personally, I want prayer handed to me. I don't necessarily want to go out and get prayer. Jesus is somewhat reproached by his disciples. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You should be somewhere else. Peter and the others see needs, but they don't understand Jesus. Jesus prays before dark, before light for a long time. It's a busy and demanding schedule he has. You? Are you too busy to pray? My friends, if you and I are too busy to pray, guess what? We really are too busy. I think it was... Martin Luther and some others would say, I've got a really busy day ahead. 
I've got a lot going on. I think I need to get up and pray. Jesus' exterior ministry of strength is contingent upon his interior dependence on God. A substantial time in prayer was the basis of substantial time for people. Um, who, Who can raise their hand? People are draining. I mean, I'm an extrovert, but you know what? After a while, even you guys drain me, okay? How do we have the energy and the fuel for people? Prayer with our Father. It's the fuel for our ministry. So is prayer a priority for you like it was for our Savior? The perfect man? Is it? And he prayed, why? To pray? No, he prayed so he would know that his priority is to preach. To preach Let us go on to the next towns, he says, that I may preach there also, for that is why he came. It's one of three purpose statements in Mark, to call sinners, to serve, and to preach. In the midst of popularity, there was the danger of the word being obscured by the deed, but Jesus knows how to hold in balance the word and the deed. Jesus teaches and Jesus heals. It's not a mere illustration, but a demonstration of the reality of the nature of the coming kingdom. In order to understand the significance of Jesus' actions, we must first listen to his words. Are you listening? Remember what in the world is the church? The church is a what? A learning community. Why? The church has to listen to God speak through his word. Jesus knows that his mission is to preach, to proclaim. But I want you to notice something. What is not the priority? If Jesus' priority is to preach, and in order to preach, he's got to get up early to pray, what does Jesus not consider a priority? And that is this, to be popular. Jesus turns away right now from enormous popular wellspring and wave of support in order to go somewhere else. Jesus is not a politician running for office. Jesus has an office as our prophet, priest, and king, but he's not running for office. He's in office. He's not pursuing popularity. Brothers and sisters, what about us? Is grace and peace trying to be a popular church? What's our goal? Worldly influence? As I've said before, if we want to pack these pews, hey, there's enough marketing firms out there at our doorstep waiting to make that happen. Our goal is not popularity because Jesus' goal was not popularity. Rather, we want to be influential with the Word. It's our calling. It's our priority. People who listen to, who live by The word of God, man doesn't live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We want to be faithful and true to what God has revealed to us through his word. So in our text, we've seen Jesus, King Jesus, demonstrating his authority as well as declaring his priority. And again, 
His priority is not to be popular. He's not to do what the world wants him to do. He's on a mission. But let's end now with just a couple of takeaways as well as with a question. First, let's acknowledge the mystery. Who is the king? In his gospel, Mark is revealing who Jesus is. He's answering the first question, who is Jesus? So what do we learn here about Jesus? He's a man of authority over men, over doctrine, over demons, over sickness. And Jesus' words are commanding and his commands are irresistible. Do you see any resistance? It's not there. Jesus has both the authority and the ability to change a life. And Peter would be someone, as he writes in First and Second Peter, who knows that firsthand. In a day when folks are looking for hope and change, this is change that we can believe in. Because it's coming from the life and ministry of Jesus. Now sometimes we rush to ask the question, how does this all apply to me? What must I do? Well, before we ask those questions, let's pause and just look at Jesus right now. Are we, like those in the synagogue, astonished and amazed? Or is Jesus just ho-hum, run-of-the-mill, one of the many guys that claims he's the way to God? Well, if you stop and are astonished and amazed, then that's the application. It leads to worship. Worship in the presence of God in all and adoration and amazement and astonishment. Read the psalmist. They are astonished and amazed by the Lord. And here people are seeing, although they don't know it yet, the Lord in the flesh. And they are astonished and amazed. So finally, let's end with a question. And it's a question of authority. The question of the authority of King Jesus. When you hear authority, is your response one of fear or of joy? In our shorter catechism, we ask the question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And we hear this answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of king. I need that kind of ruler. Because someone or something rules you and someone or something right now is king in your life. Who's ruling your life right now? Who's calling the shots? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Is Jesus your king? Have you come to him? He's calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glimpse into the life and ministry of Jesus. We thank you that you've given us a record of his authority to call, to teach, to heal. 
We thank you for this record of what he pursued as his priority. Oh, Father, enable us to see Jesus as the King, the King who not only subdues us to himself, but the King who rules and defends us against all his and our enemies. Oh, Father, help us to rejoice that Jesus is King and that you have given us eyes to see him by faith. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon your people. Enable us to follow this King all the way home, for we pray in his name. Amen.